No, no problem. This is wherever we go, we go. So t- tonight is is the tenth of Tevet. It's a uh, a Jewish, so to say, a holiday. It's a fast, and basically the Talmud talks about three days: the eighth of Tevet, the ninth of Tevet, and the tenth of Tevet. Each of them might have been a fast day on its own, but we combine the three into a single day. This day, the 10th of Tevet, the reason we established it, it's established as the first fast day of the year, was because it was the day the Babylonians originally circled the city of Jerusalem and began the siege. A year later, they break through the walls, and then three weeks later, they destroy the temple. Now, one of the interesting things is we know that when it comes to fast days, now the, the, the eighth day, the reason the eighth day would, would have been a fast day was the day the Torah was translated into Greek and the rabbis frowned upon that. The ninth is the day Ezra died and Ezra was, I guess, sort of the second, the second Moses, we could say, right? And uh, that was the ninth, and the tenth is this Aserah Tevet. So the interesting thing is we have certain fast days. If they fall out on certain days, we push them. For example, if the ninth of Av falls out on a Saturday, we push it to Sunday. We don't fast on Saturday. Other fast days, if they fall out on a Friday, for example, the fast of Esther, if it falls out on a Friday, we push it back to Thursday because we don't like to fast on Friday. We definitely don't like to fast on Saturday. The only fast day that we have on Saturday is Yom Kippur, and that's because Yom Kippur is sort of a gift. It's not a fast day of mourning. It's a gift to cleanse us, so we fast even. Shabbat says welcome, and we fast even on Shabbat. The interesting thing about this fast day of the 10th of Tevet is if it falls out on a Friday, we fast on a Friday. And there's an opinion from Avudraham that if it fell out on a Shabbat, which it can't fall out on Shabbat because of the calendar, but if it, if it had fallen out on Shabbat, we would fast even on Shabbat. So the question is, what is so terrible about this day, the 10th of Tevet, that we would fast, we do fast on a Friday, and we would fast on a Saturday, according to certain opinions. You know that on the, on the 9th of Av, we fast. Why? Because the temple was destroyed. And that day is a terrible calamity. We know that the 17th day of Tammuz, we fast because the walls of the, uh, of the city were, were broken. And there's a terrible calamity. But it doesn't seem to be such a terrible calamity that there was a siege on the city. Had the siege not resulted in the, in the destruction of the temple, we wouldn't have a fast at all. What's also interesting is this siege occurred during the first temple. But we still fasted on this day during the second temple period, voluntarily. So why would we still fast in a second temple period <coughs> voluntarily when we have the temple back? What's so terrible about this day that that the rabbis were so, so concerned that we, we fast. And what's the point of fasting, of fasting on this day? So let's leave that for a second and then let's go into the week's portion. And we'll try to see from the week's portion 
how it relates. One of the miraculous things is that we divide the week's portion, weekly portion, throughout the year. And Ezra seemed to have divided it in a way that, who knows how, but we could relate so much from each week's reading to what is going on that week in the world around us. So this week we read, we read the parashah, it's called Vayechi. It's called Vayechi Yaakov and Jacob lived. The reality is, the focus of this week's portion is the death of Jacob. So it seems strange to choose as the language, choose the name Vayechi Yaakov and Jacob lived. When in fact it's when Jacob dies. And we begin Vayechi Yaakov Be'eretz Mitzrayim and Jacob lived in the land of Egypt. Shavas Reshana, 17 years. So here again we have something very interesting. In, in, oh, so I'll, I'll bring a gematria even if I wasn't. Not an important one. But the gematria for the word tov, taf vav bet, tov, good, is 17. So we see that Jacob lived with Joseph 17 years before Joseph was sold as a slave to Egypt. And Jacob lives again 17 years in Egypt with Joseph before he dies. So we have Tov and Tov. 17 and 17. Those were the years that Jacob was with Joseph in the beginning, and those were the years that Jacob was separated from Joseph. Jacob was separated from Joseph for 22 years. And we could use the word karma. Why was he separated for 22 years? Because, and why did he have not... He lost the respect of his son. He lost the connection to his son during those years. And the rabbi suggests is because Jacob left his own father and mother for 22 years when he went up to Syria to find a wife. Originally, he was only supposed to go for seven years. Seven years became 14 years. 14 years, he should have come back. His mother sent a messenger to bring him back. He stayed another six years, which was 20. And then the journey back because he had so many sheep and so many cattle and all his little kids, took two years until he eventually came back to his father. So some rabbis suggest because he separated from his own father for 22 years, in a way he was punished and he was separated from his son for the same 22 years. Now if you look in a Torah scroll, each portion, you generally can, you, you look, so when we open the Torah scroll on Shabbat and everyone wants to look into the Torah, one of the things a person does is take a pointer and point to where this week's portion begins. So you should see the beginning words of this week's portion. Generally, each portion is separated like a paragraph break, one to the other. The one, one of the few portions where there's no separation whatsoever is this portion. So to be able to find it is not so easy because you're looking in the middle of a line with no break between the words and you go from the last verse in last week's portion to the first verse in this week's portion, there's no break. The rabbis call that a parshas tuma, a closed portion. And the first question that everyone asks is why is this portion called a closed portion, when every other portion is open, separated. And the answer Rashi begins, Rashi begins and he says, is this week is closed, stuma, closed, because he says that Jacob wanted to reveal to his children the kets, the end, what would be with the end of time. 
And what was happened is he was blocked. Same wording, stuma, like closed, blocked. He was blocked, he couldn't reveal. Rashi brings another answer. He says, in this portion, Jacob dies. And as soon as Jacob dies, he writes, it's the beginning of slavery. He says, as soon as Jacob dies, the Egyptians commenced to subjugate the people. The problem with the statement of Rashi is, it seems to be not true. Because Jacob dies, and who remains the viceroy of Egypt for the next 55 years after Jacob dies? Joseph. So if Joseph's the viceroy of Egypt, the Jewish people aren't slaves. And we know that even after Joseph dies, his brother Levi is still alive. He dies at 137. Joseph dies at 110. Levi was probably seven years older than him. So it's another 20 years later that Levi dies. So altogether, 75 years after Jacob dies, pass before slavery begins. So why does Rashi say as soon as Jacob dies, slavery commences? Next week, we're going to read about being slaves in Egypt. But we have all these years. So why is he saying as soon as Jacob dies, slavery commences? What do you think? But the dynamics changed. But Joseph's still alive. Joseph's still the ruler. No, not not quite. Mm. Because there's a nuance, the difference in dynamics that Joseph starts asking Parole permission to go and, and, and do this. So, and that. So, that, so that was suggested this morning. We, we right. suggested this morning, but, but, but let's think of it this way. Why didn't Joseph go to his father last week? Last week, when, Joseph, when, when the brothers learned Joseph is alive, Joseph tells him, go home, go to daddy, bring him to me. Why didn't Joseph just say to Paro, listen, I'm taking a, a few weeks off. I'm taking the caravan with the carriages. I'm going to see my dad and I'll bring him back. Well, he, he had no permission to leave then and he had no permission to leave later. And he asked to ask permission to bury his own father. I believe that Joseph, even though he called himself the father of Pharaoh, I believe Joseph was only a high, high, high level slave. <laughs> he was a servant to the house of... of, of he was a servant to the court. I don't think he could have done what he wanted any time. No, but when Yaakov died, uh-huh. the, the saliency of, of, uh, of the famine had gone. So he wasn't, the pro- he wasn't micromanaging the food and this and so on. But even when he, the second year, right, but the, as soon as Jacob arrived, right. so remember, one thing to keep in mind, the, the, originally the prophecy was that there was going to be seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. And we read last week that in the first two years of famine, what happened in Egypt? First, they gave all their money, no more money. Then he said, then they gave all their cattle, no more cattle. And then they said, what are we going to do? We need food in the second year. So in the second year, they gave their land and they gave themselves as servants to the king. And, and Joseph made a deal and said, okay, now we, the king owns everything. Go back and work the land. He moved people from one place to another place. So they didn't have the connection to the land. And basically everyone was a serf. And they earned 80% of whatever they earned. And 20% back went back to the royal court. So that was the second year. 
The problem now is in the third year. Where is their money? How are they going to buy food? And why, doesn't the, why don't the verses talk about the third year, the fourth year, the fifth year, the sixth year, and the seventh year of the famine? Ah. So once Jacob shows up, Jacob blesses Pharaoh, and the famine ends. So there was really only two years of famine, then seven years, seven years of plenty, then two years of famine. So after that, really, what did Joseph have to do? Well, that's what I'm He's, saying. Right, I got gotcha. you. <laughs> so, but Joseph seems to still manage Egypt, because we see even his son... Menashe is managing in Egypt. His, Joseph's oldest son seems to be his right-hand man, and he seems to be managing Egypt on behalf of the royal court. So the royal family is sitting wherever they're sitting, doing whatever they're doing, having whatever parties they have, while they leave the country to be managed by Joseph, his son, and all of his assistants. The other brothers seem to all go into business. Please. Okay. Somebody talked about um, what story, I mean, I skimmed through parts of the story. Please, please. But uh, I don't think I've read any of this. So, okay, so we have, we have the story. This is a story of Joseph. So you remember the, Joseph, you know, the, the theater, the play, the movie. Joseph is the son of Jacob. Joseph's brothers sell him. You, you're with that or no? Okay, he ends up in Egypt. In Egypt, he ends up in he his he, he he's accused of uh, of raping his uh, his master's wife, which was false. He he gets you got to see you got to see the play. It was Joseph and the Technical. This is amazing. Okay, so even that all, but you you got to read the story to to have some. So if. So it's going to be the end, the last, the last few chapters of Genesis. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. So, so, so basically, now what what's happening is Joseph. So, 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 so Jacob is. So it says Jacob now is Jacob, who's the father of the twelve tribes. He's going to die. So So he calls Joseph. And he says to him, If I found favor in your eyes. Now this all seems very strange. Put your hand under my thigh. Why does that mean put your hand under my thigh? So the only holy thing we had as a people until we had the Torah was the sign of the covenant, which was the circumcision. So he says, put your hand under my thigh. Swear by whatever is holy. Right? That you're going to do kindness and you're going to you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna follow my request. Now the question here is, if my father called me up and said, Dave, do me a favor, I need you to tell me you're going to do something for me. Okay. Why do you mean he has to make him swear and he makes him swear again? And what does he want him to do? He says, when I die, make sure I don't get buried in this country. Okay. So he tells him, make sure I don't get buried. Why does he have to put him through this whole thing that he shouldn't get buried in the country? It says, it says, and he makes him swear. 
And he says that I want to be buried with my rest of my family. I want to be buried where my father is. I want to be buried where my grandfather is. I want to be buried where my mother is. I want to be buried where my grandmother is. And he goes through the whole place of where he wants to be buried, as if they don't know. So Joseph swears, and, and, uh, and he swears to him. Then it seems to be a few days go by, and word comes back to Joseph that his father is ill. Now we know his father must have been already getting ill because his father called him to come swear that you're going to bury me. And he, he comes to him and he says, and Joseph now finds out his father's ill, so he rushes his father's side and he brings with him his two sons. He has two sons, Menasheh, who we said was basically the assistant to the viceroy. And the other son is Ephraim. What was Ephraim doing? Ephraim, for the last 17 years, was learning with his grandfather Jacob. So it seems Ephraim saw that the grandfather's condition was getting worse. He rushes back to Egypt. He brings his brother and his father, and they come. The question is, why do they come? To get a blessing. It's almost like, whoa, we got a problem here, right? Mm -hmm. We already had a whole problem because, because Isaac was going to bless Jacob and Esau, and we had a thing, who is he going to bless? So it's, it's almost like deja vu all over again, right? You have now, he's going to die. So let me run to get a blessing. I'm not going to call my other 11 brothers. I'm not going to tell them to bring their kids. I'm going to go with my two kids, and I'm going to get to the, my father with my two kids, and I'm going to tell my father to do what? To bless my two kids and nobody else. Why his two kids more than everybody else? Not only that. It says, it says, so Jacob turns to Joseph when he comes with his two sons. And he says, And now, Your two sons, Who were born to you in Egypt. Until I've come to you. They are me. Ephraim and Menasheh. Ephraim and Menasheh, the two sons of Joseph, are like Reuben and Shimon, like my two eldest sons. So Jacob is basically saying, there's going to be 12 tribes. There's 12 tribes are going to be made up of 10 of my children and two of your sons. Your sons are like my sons. What's so special about these two as compared to every other grandson that he has? Let's keep going. Says, Yosef, and all of a sudden he sees the children of Joseph. Now he sees them. He just said that your sons are going to be like my sons. Your sons are going to be like my sons. He sees them and he says, Vayomer, he says, Mi ele, who are these? Oh, well, Dad, you just these are the ones you just said that you're going to be like your sons. What do you mean, Mi ele? So the rabbis say, Mi ele, he sees in the future. That one is going to have an evil son, Yeravam ben Nevat, and the other one's going to have an evil son, Yehu, or kings of Israel, and they do terrible things. And he says, Because of them, I don't want to bless. What? You don't want to give me a blessing because in a thousand years I'm going to have some wicked great 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 grandchild? We're all going to have. Uh, what, what, what does that mean? So Joseph answers his father. Banaihem, they're my children. They're the ones you were just talking about. These are who God gave me in Egypt. So Jacob says, okay, bring them to me and I will bless them. So again, we have the question, why bless them 
more than any of the other grandchildren. Now let's go into how he blesses them. The oldest is Menashe, the younger is Ephraim. We already had the issue of Jacob and Esau, who's going to steal the birthright, who's going to be older. So Joseph puts the two sons in front of his father. So his father's right hand, he puts Menashe in front of his father's right hand, and he puts Ephraim in front of his father's left hand. So his father should be able to put his hands out and bless each one. What does his father do? He crosses his hands. Okay, now you want to make more trouble. Not only are you only blessing these grandchildren and nobody else, but these two kids get along. Now you're going to make them jealous of each other and bless the older instead of the younger? Why? What What are you doing? So he puts his right hand on the younger and he puts his left hand on the older. And what does he say? He says something even stranger. Now, Joseph is trying to switch hands. But he can't. His father's hands are solid, crossed. And he says, Yosef. He, blesses, he blesses his son Joseph. And he says, God who went in front of me, in front of me, in front of Abraham, in front of Isaac, the God who watched over me until this day. And then he says, The angel who watched over me from all evil. We say meaning the Shekhinah, the spirit of Hashem. He should bless these two, these two boys. My name should be called on them. The the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. And they should be like fish. They should grow tremendously among the land. So Joseph sees that his father switched hands and he tries to switch his hands. But his father refuses and he says, don't worry, they're both going to be blessed. Now we have a custom, every, every Friday night, we bless our children. How do we bless our children? We say these words, Yesimecha Elohim mehashem make you ke'efrayim u'kemenashem. We use the names of Joseph's sons in reverse order, because Ephraim is the youngest and Menashe is the older. We say to our own children, Yesimecha Elohim ke Ephraim Menashe. Hashem should make you like Ephraim Menashe. Now, one thing I have to ask what do we know about Ephraim and Menashe? Nothing more than I told you in two sentences. We believe that Menashe was the assistant to Joseph while he worked in Egypt, and Ephraim, we know, learned with his grandfather for the 17 years. Other than that, we have no stories. So if I was going to bless my children, I'm going to tell my children, you know, kids, you should be like Moses and Aaron. They want to hear the story. They could watch the Prince of Egypt. They could uh, read the Bible. They could watch uh, the Ten Commandments. You have all the stories. You want to be like Moses and Aaron. You want to be like David and Solomon. You want to be like Joseph. We have all the stories. You want to be like Jacob. We have the stories. You want to be like Abraham. We have the stories. The one, two people we have no idea of any stories are who? Ephraim and Asher. Yet still, those are the ones that we use those names to bless our children. Question is why? What's so special about them? Why, out of all the grandchildren, are they the only ones that get blessed? Okay? And why reverse? So we're going to come back and try to answer. Now, it's time to call all the other kids... 
all the other sons, and he's going to give his children his last blessing, his final blessing. It says, Yaakov el banav, and Jacob called to his children. Vayomer, and he said, Gather around me, and I will tell to you what will happen to you what will happen to you in the end of days. The rabbis say he attempted to reveal to them what would happen in the end of days, but it was blocked. So he looks and he sees his sons and he says, am I blocked because of one of you is not proper? They all turn to him together and they say, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. Now he says to them, okay, since I can't reveal to you what's going to happen at the end of days, let me bless you. So he calls his oldest son into the room. And he says, Reuven Bechoriata. So his oldest son is Reuben. Reuben, he says, Reuven Bechoriata. Reuben, you are my firstborn. Kochi, my strength. Vereshit oni. And the first, so we, we say that the first time, the first time he had a, he had a, how do I say it? The first time he had relations with anyone was with Leah, and that first time, the, the, that, the, that resulted in the birth of Reuben. He says, You are Rashid Oni. He says, You are you, you're superior in rank and superior in power. It seems to be telling Reuben he's the greatest guy. All of a sudden, what happens? He says, But you're restless like water. Therefore, you shouldn't have superiority because you took your father's bed and you removed it from the tent. Therefore, you're worthless. You're nothing. You're zero. Get out. I don't want to see you. What? So what's the story? The story we have is that when, 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 when Rachel dies, Jacob's main, main, Jacob kept his bed in Rachel's tent. That's where his main place of living was. When Rachel died, the bed was moved into the tent of Rachel's servant, Bilhah. What happens? Reuben gets upset and jealous for his mother, Leah, and he takes the bed and he moves it to his mother's tent. Jacob comes home, thinks the tent is in one, the bed is in one place, it ends up in another place, and, and Reuben is... He did the most terrible thing. It says actually that he slept with his father's wife. Because it says if he slept with his father's wife because he messed up who would have been born next and what would have been conceived, etc., etc. It says this terrible thing that he did is why Jacob is calling him out now. What happened though is this happened 50 years before. So why didn't you call him out 50 years ago? And not only that, Reuben, for the last 50 years, he's fasting every day for a certain time. He's fasting, say, every Monday and Thursday. He's putting sackcloth. He's mourning because what did he do? He did this terrible thing. So now, for the first time in 50 years, his father's going to blast him? Why not blast him then? You see, he's trying. Why not forgive him? No, he throws him out of the room. Next come in Shimon and Levi, the next two sons. Shimon and Levi, okay, he's going to bless them. He turns to them and he tells them, your anger is terrible, your wrath is horrible. Again, you're worthless, zero, get out. I want nothing to do with you. Now just imagine you're Judah. You're standing and it's his turn. The first three went in, 
one gets blasted, two and three get blasted. What is he blasting them for? You, bla- you know why he's blasting them? Because 60 years before, they went into the city of Shechem and they killed all the people. So blast them 60 years ago. Now you're going to blast them? You're going to be dead in a couple of days. What's it going to do? Why wouldn't you train your kids when they're younger? What were you worried about? Now he brings in Judah, and he says to Judah, you're going to be the king. What's going on? What's happening? So now let's, let's try to go back, because we run out of time. We're going to try to answer some of the questions. We're trying to understand what's, what's, what's going on, what's happening. So one of the things we said is that to, to this, tonight is a fast day, tomorrow is a fast day. Tomorrow is a fast day of Asarab Tevet. This fast day is a fast day that we, we would not push off. If it's a Friday, it's a Friday. Even if it would have come on Shabbat, we say we would have possibly fasted. What's so much about this fast day compared to the ninth of Av, the destruction? What's so much about this fast day? So one of the things we suggest is that there's a point of return and there's a point of no return. What does it mean a point of return? When the city is surrounded, there's an opportunity for the people to change it. There's an opportunity for the people to fix it. When God says Jonah into the city of Nineveh, and he says, we're going to destroy the city, unless you repent. So when something bad happens, the first thing we have to do is look to ourselves and say, can I fix something to change what's happening? The the, the tragedy of the 10th of Tevet, the tragedy is, it was all reversible. It did not need to result in the destruction of the temple. Sometimes things happen to us in our lives the first thing God is trying to send us a message. So he gives us a little tap. And if we say, oh, why did I get tapped? How light could the tap be? The Talmud tells us if I stick my hand in my, in my pocket and I'm by the meter and I want to pull out a quarter, do, do meters still take quarters? I want to put a meter, to, I want to put a quarter to put in the meter. And instead of taking out a quarter, I take out a nickel. I have to ask myself, why did that happen? That's a little punishment from God. And I should ask myself, did I do something to warrant that? And if I didn't listen to that, then God forbid I get in the car and I drive and I get a speeding ticket. I say, whoa, why did I get a speeding ticket? Nobody else got the speeding ticket. Maybe I was speeding, but was I speeding more? Say, oh, did I do something that warranted me getting a speeding ticket? And if I don't pay attention to that, God forbid, he sends something worse. Because he's trying to wake us up. So when the city is surrounded, there's an opportunity for the people to fix it, to change it. And if they would have fixed it and they would have changed it, there would have been no destruction of the temple. None whatsoever. So what do we do? We go fast. Like Reuben fasted every single day of his life. But what did Reuben not do on any day of his life? The Talmud tells us the one mistake he made was he fasted, he put sackcloth on, he did that, but he never came to his father and he said, Dad, I messed up. Dad, I'm sorry. Dad, how could I make up for it? 
What was the sin of Shimon and Levi? They did what they did in the city. They knew their father was angry. And what did they not do? Dad, we're sorry. Dad, we messed up. Dad, how can we make up for it? Tonight, tomorrow's a fast day. We fast over the destruction of the temple. We fast of Asarav Tevet. So we could fast and we could fast and we could fast. But if we don't understand that the purpose of fasting is not just not to eat food. The purpose of a fast, the purpose of a day like tomorrow, the fast is not important. The point of a day like tomorrow is to have introspection. Is to look and say, what am I doing wrong? What am I doing right? How can I fix what I'm doing? How can I fix what I'm doing? Now, why does he bless certain sons and not bless other sons? Why? Why does he bless his grandchildren, two grandchildren, and none of the other grandchildren? What was different about those grandchildren than anyone else? So I know my rabbi would teach us, and when we would learn, we would learn a certain sugya, a certain, uh, a certain uh, subject, and he would go through the subject. And if you had a question on the subject, you needed to ask the question before he completed the subject. Because if he would go to the next subject and you would ask a question on the last subject, you would confuse everyone in the class. So you could only ask a question in the class on the subject being discussed at the moment. Now, in the big yeshivas, you have a class with a thousand people. So the rabbi is giving a class to a thousand people. And this is the rule. We have the subject. Any question on the subject? Okay, subject done. Move to next subject. 20 minutes into the next subject. Imagine if a kid raised his hand and said, you know, Rabbi, well, you're talking about an hour ago. I have a question. No. Nope. We can't discuss it now because you'll confuse everybody. So here's a true story. 20 minutes into the next subject, a boy raises his hand and he asks a question on the last subject. So a thousand kids look up and say, he's dead. <laughs> he's dead. The rabbi's going to kill him. Not only that, he asked a question on the subject where the rabbi explained it so clearly every one of us understood. So what did the rabbi do? He stopped where he was. He went back to the previous subject and he explained it from A to Z. So after the class, all of us smart Alex go up to the rabbi and say, I don't understand what happened to the rule. What happened to no going back in the subject? And the rabbi said something. He said, you know this boy? He's been in this class for two years. He's never asked a question in his whole life. And he finally builds up the courage to ask a question. Do you know what would have happened if I would have smacked him down? That would have been the last question he would have asked in his entire life. <laughs> so what do I have to do? I had to do what I had to do, and all of you have to understand. What's the difference between Ephraim and Menashe and all of the other grandchildren? All the other grandchildren of Jacob were born in Jacob's house. They were born in Canaan. They were born in Israel. They were born as part of a family. They had all their uncles and aunts around them. There were two boys 
who were born in Egypt. No family, bless you, no family, no one around them. Only who? Only their father. They was so easily, could have been easily swallowed by the world around them. Menashe, the older one, is his father's servant, so to say, his father's assistant. He's in the middle of Egyptian society. The younger one, even more difficult because his, fa- his brother has a lot of pride. His brother is like his father. The younger one has nothing. So what does he do? He blesses those grandchildren before he blesses every other grandchild. And he blesses the younger over the, over the older because the younger needed it more. A way to look at it, right? So again, it's a lesson to us. It's a lesson to us that we have to look at life in, re- in real ways. We have to look at the underdog, so to say, and give them the benefit that the underdog needs. And it's a way to understand why did Jacob do this? Why did Jacob behave this way towards his grandchildren? And why do we bless our own children using those names, Ephraim and Hashem? Because they were able to be connected and to remain connected even though they grew up in exile. Our own children for 2,500 years, whatever, were growing up in exile. So what do we bless our children? That even if you're growing up in exile, you should be like fish in the water. What does it mean, fish in the water? Fish have no ayin hara against them, and the water protects them, and the water always refers to Torah. So we bless the children that the children should be, even though you're going to be like them, growing up in the middle of nothing, with nothing, that you should be blessed to be like Ephraim and Asher, to have the strength no matter what's surrounding you, no matter what's against you, to grow up and to be able to be connected like they were connected. So we look at things that we read in the parasha and we try to understand what's happening, why is it happening, how is it happening. Every single thing we read in the weekly portion, everything we read is a lesson. It's a lesson to us. And the Arizal, when, he, when he's looking and explaining these different things, is trying to explain it to us, not just so we say, so we should have Kabbalah and we should be going to fly. It's nothing to do with to fly. It's only to do with one thing, that we should know how we have to live our lives. Everything is a lesson in how we have to live our lives and realize that we are important. We are important. We are. One of the things is he, he doesn't want to reveal the kits. Says that, that Jacob didn't want to reveal the end. Why didn't he want to reveal the end? Why was it blocked? Why was it stuma? Why was it closed? And the answer is very simple. If I'm going to tell you that you're going to go into exile, it's now you're going to Egypt, you're going to be in Egypt for 210 years, and then you get out. Okay, I'll be in Egypt for 210 years, then I'll get out. But I'm going to tell you, but after Egypt, you're going to go into your land, and then the Babylonians are going to come, and after the Babylonians are going to come, then the Persians are going to come, and after the Persians are going to come, then the Greeks are going to come, and after the Greeks are going to come, then the Romans are going to come, and it's going to be thousands of years before you finish. What am I going to tell you? Forget it. I don't want to be here. I don't want to do this. It's too much work. But the reality is that that's what we have to do. What is, it, what is, what is, what is really the, going on? What's going on is, is, again, we go back to the garden. And we finish with this. 
Adam sins in the garden. Adam sins in the garden. What do we all have to do? We have to fix what Adam did. We have to fix it. And we say, what was the main thing he did? Was this lack of self-control. Joseph shows self-control. His sons living in Egypt show self-control. All of them are trying to contribute to fixing the self-control. And what do we have to do? We have to fix it ourselves. There's no end until we bring the end. No one's bringing the end to us. There's no miraculous guy coming on a white, on the white donkey on his own. The guy coming on the white donkey is only coming when we open the door, when we build the road. And how do we build the road? By doing what we call tikkun, by doing fixing. What does that mean, fixing? We have to fix ourselves and we have to fix the society. We have to work on that with everything we have. And the lessons that we have to do this are the lessons that we get in each week's parashah. Each week's portion, we have a lesson. What do you need to do to fix yourself? What do you need to do to fix society? Just look how beautiful it is if we take the lesson of relating to our own children, our own family, our own friends. You don't show favoritism. No, but certain times I need to show favoritism. I need to do that in order to pick someone else up who needs to be picked up. I need to take that lesson. And then on the side of Reuben, I can go and fast and do whatever I want for years and years. But if I hurt somebody, what do I have to do? My fasting and crying to God, I can stand there in the, in the, in the pound my chest all day. I sinned. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I sinned. It's worth zero. Until what do we need to do? Go back to the guy that we hurt and say, I'm sorry. And what can I do to make up for what I did? If we don't do that, you know, you have the whole thing now with the guys who did terrible things, you know, the whole Me Too situation. The first thing that any one of these guys has to do is go back to the person that they hurt and apologize. But they're not. They'll go on TV and say, I did, I did, I did, I did, I did. Going to read. Going to read, because... But it does not worth anything until they go to the person. Not even if they wrote them a check, it doesn't do anything. Until they come to the person and acknowledge what they did and say, I'm sorry for what I did. How do I make up for it? That's what our job is. And that's the lesson of the Perasha. Thank you, everybody, for coming. Maybe you should mention the... Uh, that up. Just uh, one last... So Yehud is the fourth brother, and he comes in. So why does Judah, the fourth brother, the first three are all, they all get thrown out of the room and yelled at. And he gets told, you're going to be the king. Why? What's different from him than the brothers? So Judah messes up with Tamar. Judah basically, Judah has his three sons. The first two sons he die married to this girl. The third he doesn't want to give to her. She dresses up like a, like a prostitute. He ends up sleeping with her. They have a child. He wants to burn her at the stake. She sends uh, his, his things to him as a message without trying to embarrass him in public. And what does he do in front of the whole court? In front of everyone. In front of his father. He says, I sinned. She's more righteous than me. I messed up. I'm sorry. I apologize. And Judah becomes the king. What's the secret to becoming the king? Being able and willing to admit, I made a mistake. And how is that a tikkun of Adam HaRishon? When God tells Adam, why did you eat from the tree? What does Adam tell God? The wife you gave it was the wife you gave me. But he's not blaming the wife. When he says, it was the wife you gave me, who is he blaming? God. God. 
And when Saul, when Saul sins, and when the prophet, when Shmuel, when Samuel comes to Saul and say, why did you do this? What does he say? It was the people. It was this. It was that. What is the key to being the king? Why is, why is Judah the king? Why has David become the king? Because when David, is, when David is confronted by Nathan the prophet, and Nathan tells him the story, he says to him a story. There was, there was a, a, a man and he had many sheep, and then there was his neighbor who had one sheep. And what happened is the man with many sheep took the neighbor's single sheep and slaughtered it and ate it. What do we do to the rich man who took his neighbor's only sheep? And David says, kill him. And Nathan says, Atahaish, you're the man. And what, is, what does David say? I sinned. Because if you want to be king, the first thing you have to be able to do is what? Admit when you mess up. And that's the biggest tikkun of Adam HaRishon. Adam was unable to admit that he did wrong. If Adam would have admitted, we say something very interesting. We say, Mizmor Shir Yom HaShabbat. Every, Saturday, every Friday night, every Saturday, we say, Mizmor Shir Yom HaShabbat. This is, we say, Adam wrote this. What, is this. what are the words? Tov lehodot lahashem. It's good to admit to God. When his son, Cain, kills Hevel, and Cain is not killed, Adam asks Cain, Cain, what did you do? He says, I admitted that I did it. He says, and you admit it and God forgives you? He says, yes. He says, tov lehodot lahashem. We can translate hoda'ah as being thankful, but we could also translate tov lehodot lahashem is it's good to admit Hashem. If a person admits, so if we go into tomorrow, a fast day, the point of the fast day is to what? Fix ourselves, not just to fast. See who we did wrong to. Go back to the person, admit that we did it, apologize, fix it. Then the fast day works. If the Jewish people had done that 2,500 years ago when the city was first surrounded, the city would never have been destroyed. So I hope we got a lesson out of tonight and we go forward. God willing, we'll see you all next week.